jump into our text, which is 1 Corinthians 3 tonight. But first, let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for the chance once again to open up your word and be with your people. And I pray that as we read this tonight, uh, Lord, would you please help me to focus. Uh, Help me to communicate clearly your word tonight. Uh, And I pray that as I speak that your spirit would transform our hearts, help us to see Jesus more clearly, help us to love him more. Uh, I am asking that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh, Stacy Irvine was a 17-year-old British factory worker in Birmingham, England. And one day in early 2012, Stacy was working out on the floor there of the factory when kind of seemingly out of nowhere, she just collapsed and fell there onto the floor of the factory. And, and co-workers and, and uh, friends gathered around trying to figure out what was, what was going on. She, she couldn't breathe. She was struggling to breathe there, kind of taking in these deep breaths, couldn't really get all of her oxygen. And so they rushed her to the hospital to try and get things worked out. And when she arrives, she's still struggling to breathe. She's got uh, these veins that are swollen all around her tongue swelling up everywhere. And as they begin to do little blood tests and, and diagnosis and all these different things, trying to figure out or getting to the bottom of things, uh, they discover she's severely anemic, uh, severely vitamin deficient, like she has zero vitamins or nutrients in her body. And so they're trying to get to the bottom of this. And, and at some point while they're running blood work and doing all these tests, some doctor or nurse asks her a little bit about her diet. And it's at that point that uh, Stacy tells the medical staff there that uh, for the last 15 years, she has eaten nothing but McDonald's chicken McNuggets and French fries. Literally, <laughs> literally, I sh- actually, I shouldn't say that. I exaggerate a little bit. Not nothing but McDonald's. Occasionally, she would take a break from that and eat uh, KFC nuggets, okay, and French fries. And then every great now and then, because you can't have McDonald's nuggets for breakfast. Every now and then, you got to have something for breakfast. So she would have um, a piece of toast. So, but for, other than that, for 15 years, from the time she was two years old until she was 17, nothing but chicken McNuggets day in and day out, 365 days a year for 15 years. She told a newspaper, this became a story, told a newspaper that she had never once in her life tasted a vegetable, never once tasted a piece of fruit in her entire life. And, and eventually, like, her body was just like, I've had enough of this, I'm done with this, and just collapsed and gave out on her. And, and they were trying to kind of get the, how does this even happen? How does a kid, like what parent has let their kid only eat McNuggets for their entire life? And so they actually talked to her mom and, and her mom was like, believe me, I've tried everything. I've, I've done everything I could. I've, I've offered rewards. I've offered punishments. I've like withheld food until she would eat something else. But she just would like starve herself. There's nothing I've been able to do no matter what I've tried. And even with doctors giving her these stern warnings in the past, like, this is going to cost you at some point. You can't eat only these things. It's going to cost you. No matter what was said to her, no matter what was done, Stacy refused to ever eat anything past little kid food. Refused to ever grow beyond that. And it was a deep frustration for her mom. Uh, the Apostle Paul 
who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians that we're studying, he, he knows that mom's frustration. Because he had a group of, of his kids, you could say, that he was trying to raise up in the faith, to raise up, to grow and mature them in Christ. And he wanted to feed them better food. He wanted to feed them meat. He wanted to feed them like deep te- uh, teaching and doctrine and give them into kind of like the, the meat of truth about Christ. But he wasn't able to, not because they refused it, but because they themselves, the Corinthian church, refused to grow up. And because they refuse to grow up, he says, I can't feed you anything beyond the basics because that's all you're ready to handle. Uh, We've talked for the last few weeks, we've seen in chapters 1 and chapters 2, how Paul has been comparing uh, worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. The wisdom of this age, the wisdom of human beings with the wisdom of God. And he's been contrasting those things. And so in chapter 1, he talked about this idea that the, the cross, this idea that the Son of God that we worship would come to the earth and be crucified and die a shameful, humiliating death. He says that's foolishness to the world. They don't get that. That looks ridiculous to them. But, he says, to us, it is the wisdom and power of God. And then in the next chapter, what we talked about, Alec talked about last week, the difference between a person who is able to see the cross and Christ's crucifixion as wisdom and power rather than seeing it as foolishness, the difference is the Holy Spirit. That those people who have the Spirit, he calls them the spiritual person, they are able to understand what they see even though it looks backwards even though it looks upside down that our messiah would come and die they're able to see that for what it is the power of god well tonight he's going to continue this theme of godly wisdom as the key to going to growing in the christian faith but he's actually going to circle back around to something he mentioned at the very beginning right after his opening he jumps in and he says i heard there were divisions among you I heard that you guys have been fighting it out over which leader you follow. Well, he he went off on this tangent about the cross and the foolishness of it. Now he's going to come back around to that tonight. Um, Open up, if you've got your Bible, to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's what he says. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As babies in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? So in chapter 2, when Alec was reading with us last week, he would talk about the spiritual person, and he was contrasting, in in chapter 2, Paul's contrasting the spiritual person with someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit at all. So the spiritual person is someone with the Holy Spirit, and the person who is the natural person, he says, is someone who does not have the Spirit of God in them. Now he's going to kind of change that contrast. In this passage, when he says the spiritual person, he's not just talking about someone who has the Holy Spirit, but who is letting the Holy Spirit take charge in their life, who is following the Spirit and who is letting the Spirit lead them as opposed to a Christian who may have the Spirit but is refusing to follow the Spirit's lead and is living instead like someone without the Spirit, is living, he uses this phrase, a a worldly life or a fleshly life is what he comes back to. And he says, you're acting like babies. You're acting like immature. You're acting like people who don't have the Spirit. 
when you fight amongst one another, when you make human leaders the point. Here's what he says in verse, uh, verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers, and you are God's field, God's building. So Paul says, let me, I just want to give you proper perspective. These people that you are boasting about, these people that you want to jump on the bandwagon and say, I'm a Paul guy, or I'm an Apollos guy, or I'm a Peter guy. He says, just so you know, those are just servants. That's all we are. We're servants of Jesus. And so what you're essentially doing is you're bragging about butlers. You're bragging about maids. You're not bragging about people. We're not the, the important, we're not the point like you think we are. And he says that we are actually God's fellow co-workers. Now, that can be translated or, or interpreted in one or two different ways. The question is, when he says co, who does the co refer to? Is Paul and Apollos, are they a co-worker with God? That is, God is their co-worker. They work alongside God to do the ministry that they're doing. Or is Paul saying co-worker to refer to Apollos? Apollos and I are co-workers and we belong to God. I believe because of the way that this sentence is structured, it talks about, says that you are God's field. Well, the field belongs to who then? God. You are God's building, so then the field belongs to who then? We are God's co-workers. Well, then the co-workers belong to God. So I don't think actually that Paul is saying, I am a co-worker with God. He's saying, Apollos and I are merely fellow co-workers, but we're God's fellow co-workers. That is, we are co-workers that belong to him. We are his servants who are serving him. Now, there are two interesting lessons here. He says, I came in and I planted the seed. That is, I came and shared the gospel with you. I started this church, and Paul spent a year and a half with the Corinthians, planting seeds and helping kind of lay that groundwork. And then he says, Apollos came in after me, and he watered the seed. But just so you know, I'm not the reason that you follow Jesus. And I'm not the reason that you grew, and Apollos isn't either. God is the one. It is the Holy Spirit inside a person that is enabling them to grow. We're merely doing our parts. And the two kind of interesting lessons that we can gain from that little idea, just a couple side things, is first of all, uh, that, that basically God is the one who's doing the work, which means it's not on me to try and get you guys to grow. It's my job to come and bring the word. It's my job to come and walk beside you. It's my job to kind of teach. It's Scott's job. It's Randy's job. It's Alex's job to do those things. But I can't I can't cause that to happen in you. I'm painfully aware of that some nights when I stand up to teach and I, I want to say things just right so that it'll be effective and I want to have the right stories or the right illustrations. I want to make sure it's really kind of coming through well so that things will happen in our hearts and in our lives. But I'm reminded over and over again when I read the word that this isn't on me and it's not on Alec. And it's not on Scott or Randy. It's something that God does. This is actually, I think, a great reassurance as you try to reach out and love your friends in the name of Jesus and try to point them to the truth and talk to them that that's not on you to cause them to. You can, you can speak the truth. You can love them. You can hold out the word of God, but it is God who causes a person to grow and to change inside. The second 
big lesson here is that there is no competition between ministries and ministers. I don't know if you know that. Like, we don't, I don't call like the Wilson at RUF after we're done on Thursday nights and ask him what his numbers are to see who's winning every week, right? Like, we don't, we don't try to figure out if we're beating Stumo or any of those things. No, no, we believe that Stumo, RUF, BCM, Countryside, wherever there is ministry going on to OSU students, that that is our brothers and sisters. Those are our co-workers, our fellow workers. And so we, we pray for them. We work alongside of them and, and hope to see them grow because when they grow, the kingdom grows. Verse 10 According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it, but each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire." And the fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul shifts the analogy here. Just a few verses ago, the church was the field, and they were those working in the field. Now he shifts it to say the church is like a building. And he says, I came as a skilled master builder. That word for skilled, by the way, in the Greek is wise, which is interesting. He's using their word kind of back towards them and saying, no, 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 don't. It may look foolish, but you should know that I am a wise builder. I am building with the wisdom of God. And he said, I came and laid a foundation, but someone else comes in and builds on it. Now, this might be, this is kind of the first hint that it might not be all the Corinthians that Paul's coming after with some of his comments. Like up until now, it has kind of seemed like everyone in this church is a mess. And everyone in this church is fighting and falling apart. But here's the first time where he starts to kind of hint at maybe someone else. He says, someone else is coming and they're building on it, but they better be careful how they build. Because they're not just building any old building. They're not just building a house, which would be with wood, hay, and straw. He says they're building something else that takes things like gold, silver, and jewels. The kinds of buildings that you built with gold, silver, and jewels back then were temples. He says, we're not just building any old house when we build the church, when we build up the body of Christ, when we're building people. We are building the temple of God. He's going to come to that. And, and it seems like he may be hinting at some other people who are coming in and trying to be leaders, but who may not be building with the same stuff Paul is building with, i.e. specifically the gospel and the foundational truth of Jesus Christ as Lord and the one who saves us and changes us. Instead, they're building with human wisdom. And with their own pride and with their own agenda in mind. He says what's going to happen is every person who builds in this life, whatever they're building up, whatever ministry they're doing, whatever work they're, they're doing, there will be a day when that will be disclosed. The, the day is what he often calls it, which is the judgment day. And one day the judgment will come and we're going to be able to see what everybody's work was. And those who are building with the right materials, with the good news of the scriptures and, and the truth and the doctrine here are going to see that last and survive. But those those who built with human wisdom, those who are just building up their own little kingdoms and their own little agenda, all that is going to disappear. And it's just going to fade away in the judgment and they'll see it come to nothing. Verse 16. 
says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Now here's where Paul makes it explicit that they are building the church. And again, we're not talking about a building, we're talking about actual people. The people of God, the church of God, is, Paul says, a temple. It is the dwelling place. We are the dwelling place of God himself. And because the church is God's temple, God loves it very much and takes it very seriously cares for it deeply. So anyone who comes in and tears the church apart, anyone who divides the church and pulls apart at it and begins to break apart the fellowship of believers, God takes that seriously. And he says, judgment will come on that person. If they destroy God's temple, God will destroy them. This is a serious warning for those. The punishment is condemnation because God loves his church. God loves his temple and his dwelling place. Verse 18 Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So we can see here, this is something that Paul had talked about all the way back in 118, where he says that the word of the cross is foolishness. He's coming right back around to it. And he says this, If it's true that the word of the cross, if it's true that Christ crucified, that the gospel is foolish to the world, then we better start embracing foolishness. Because the wisdom of the world, when everything gets seen for what it is in the end, when everything gets turned right side up, we're going to see that the wisdom of this day and age was foolishness in God's eyes. So you may as well embrace looking foolish. You may as well embrace the way of Jesus, even if it seems odd at, uh, even if it seems odd at first. Now, we'll come back a little bit to this idea a little bit later, but first I want to read this strange statement from Paul in the next few verses. Verse 21, so let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So here's what Paul finishes by saying. It's foolish of you to fight about God's servants, whether you're on team Paul or team Peter or team Apollos, because what you don't recognize is you don't belong to Paul. Paul belongs to you. You don't belong to Apollos. Apollos is God's servant and God's gift to you, the church. In fact, he goes on and says this, not only do we, Christ's servants, belong to you, everything does. Everything present, everything future, life and death, all of it belongs to you. Did I just read that right? Did I just hear that right? I don't understand this fully. I don't claim to to fully have this figured out. But what Paul seems to be getting at is that those who have placed their faith in Christ, they now belong to Jesus. When I commit my life to him and trust him, I belong to him and I belong to his family. And anywhere where there's a king who reigns over a kingdom, well, everything in that kingdom belongs not just to the king, but belongs to his kids, belongs to his princes and his princesses. 
belongs to all of them. And what Paul is getting at is, if you belong to Jesus, everything is his, because he is the Son of God, and you are wrapped up in that. And so the things that belong to Jesus, this sounds crazy to say, will one day belong to you already kind of do. It's like an inheritance that we haven't fully received yet. This, is, this kind of goes along with what we read in Romans 8.17 where it says that we are co-heirs with Christ. That those who suffer with Christ, those who walk with Christ, that they will inherit what Christ inherits, which is the universe, which is all things. And already, actually, the Bible tells us that God is using things for the good of His children. Romans 8.28, that all things that exist, whether good or bad, that God has the ability to take those things. When, when good things happen to me, or when bad things happen to me, or when hard things happen to me, it doesn't mean my life is going to go easy, but God, the King over all of them, uses those things for His children for my good to make me more into the image of Jesus, to help me to grow up into Him. As I said, I don't understand this fully, but we're going to talk a bit more about this in the second half. We're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about what it looks like to embrace the foolishness so that we can be seen as wise. We'll take just a three-minute break here, get up, stretch, whatever you got to do, and we'll get back to it. I want you to take uh, 30-45 seconds. I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to tell them the thing that scares you most about being an adult. Like what is, okay, no, no nervous breaks down. We're just having fun here, okay? Nobody like panic. Nobody like anxiety attacks out there. Okay, gently bring up the thing that makes you a little bit nervous about being an adult. All right, go. All right, okay. Bring it back here. <laughs> I've unlocked something here. Okay, please. All right, it's going to be okay, people. Calm down. Shh. Everybody okay? Breathe. Anybody need a paper bag or anything like that? We're, all, we're okay. Okay. Somebody should give me, I want to hear a few of them. Give me, somebody give me, what are you, what's most terrifying about being an adult? Grace. Health insurance, okay, figuring out health insurance. Tell you what, a couple years and you figure that out, you come explain it to me, okay? And I will, I will take that. Israel. Paying electric bill. The electric bill. Paying pain the electric bill, okay. Okay, right here. Giving birth, you're, okay, gotcha. Okay, someone said to Jonas giving birth is the thing there. Okay, okay, okay. just... Okay, one more from the back. One of these days I'm going to do my taxes wrong. Yes. And the IRS is going to lock me up. Okay, I am actually, I said, I, I kid you not, the first time I did taxes, I bet like seven times I would be in the middle of it with my wife and we'd be working on it and I'd just look up at her and be like, we are so going to jail, I know it. <laughs> like, I just knew, like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know I'm doing something illegal right now and I'm going to jail, so, yes. Okay, um, 
here is, here's kind of this interesting thing, and I especially think this is true with this age, is that all of us, to some degree, want to grow up in the sense of we want to mature. We want to, we want to be better than we are. And yet there is also something that is very terrifying sometimes about growing up. Sometimes we get nervous about the next step, about adulting and, and what we might be walking into and in, if we're going to be prepared for that. Well, I have good news for you tonight. Tonight I am going to tell you not how you can grow up and be in a better adult today. I'm going to tell you how you can avoid growing up, how you can put that off as long as possible. I'm going to tell you for the next 15, 20 minutes, I'm going to tell you about how you can be a big baby for the rest of your life. Uh, last week, Alec talked about basically how to be spiritual. What I want to talk to you about for just a minute is how to be unspiritual. How to make sure that you spend the rest of your life uh, living like the Holy Spirit's not in you. How you can remain, as Paul says, a baby, an infant, for the rest of your life. And there are four different things that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that Paul says these things show a person to be unspiritual. These things show that a person is acting like a baby, that, that, that the Spirit, they're not letting the Spirit control and lead them in their life. So here they are. The first is this. If you want to be unspiritual for the rest of your life, be at odds with your brothers and sisters. Be constantly fighting with them. Be divisive. Be in strained relationships with them. I don't think, actually, when we think of spiritual people, I don't think this is the first place we go. A spiritual person is someone who, we, we might have all kinds of definitions for that. Someone who spends a lot of time reading the scriptures is a spiritual person. Someone who uh, spends a lot of time in prayer. Someone who knows a lot. Someone who likes to sit and quiet and reflect. That's spiritual. One of the first places Paul goes for someone who is spiritual is do they love their brothers and sisters? Do they love their brothers and sisters in Christ? Do they get along with them? Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, The reason I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, is because you are not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? So what Paul says here is, is, I may know a lot about the Bible. I may be a very religious person attending church and praying and doing my quiet time. I may use a lot of spiritual language when I talk. I may even feel like my relationship with Jesus is really good and like I'm really close to Him. But if I'm not loving my brothers and sisters, if by my words or actions I'm causing division or conflict in the church, that is a sign that I am not submitting to the Holy Spirit. There's another way where Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4. I just want to read this to you. This is Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Paul says this. Um, let me get in the light here. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So you may have caught this. Paul lists off all these things, specifically kind of having to do with our mouths and with our attitudes, that I don't tear people down with my mouths, but instead I build them up for their good, for their grace, that I don't act in anger and shouting, that I don't live in a life of bitterness, that I don't live a life that refuses refuses to forgive people, but right in the middle of that, I don't know if you caught it, right in the middle of all of those things, he says, because when you do those things, you grieve the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit has like emotions? That the Spirit of God living in you feels happy, sad, those kinds of things. It's complicated because he's God, but the way you treat other people affects that. And if you are treating your brothers and sisters poorly, you are grieving him. You are not following him. When I gossip about others, when I live in bitterness, when I refuse to forgive, or when I let a lot of my jokes come at the expense of other people, I grieve the Spirit. And that's easy, by the way, even for me to do that last one. I'm just joking. I'm just messing with people. But, but when we have a tendency in our mouths to be the kinds of people who tear down, even in the name of sarcasm, far more than we ever build up, that may be a sign in me that I am not submitting to the Spirit. Um, number two, if you want to be unspiritual, Paul says, do this, turn leaders into idols. The Corinthians fought over, the, uh, fought over a lot of things. We'll read as, through, as we get through the book. There's a lot of different things that they divide over. But this is the specific issue that's taking place in this chapter. Paul says it in verse 4 there. He says, For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? Um, this one has, has probably, I would say, never been easier to fall into than today. Because we live in a culture that is enamored with celebrity. And, and it is easy for all kinds of people to become celebrities today through the internet. And there's all kinds of 24-7 news access around celebrities and the people we love. And this kind of uh, fascination with celebrities has often bleeded over into the church. That we take people who are gifted teachers or have really good internet personalities and we give them this status that they were never meant to have. That we talk about Matt Chandler's and Stephen Furtick's and Judah Smith's in a way that I don't know they were ever designed to be thought of or talked about. And, and I actually, I, I love Matt Chandler. I love teaching from other pastors who are, who, who've got some really great gifts in explaining the word. I love those kinds of things, but without realizing it sometimes, I think it can be easy for us to put our allegiance and even our faith to let it get wrapped up in them just as much as it is wrapped up in Jesus. I've heard numerous stories in my life about people who were involved in church or involved in the faith and then like their leader, the pastor of that church, fell into moral failure, had an affair or, or kind of dropped, uh, dropped their own faith and kind of walked away. And I've heard people describe how at that moment they began to lose their own faith, that their own faith was shaken and they walked away from the faith because they saw this moral leader collapse. If that happens, I, I get the hurt and pain that is taking place in someone when they feel those things. But that might actually be a hint. If you can think of someone right now and go, man, if that person ever walked away from Jesus, 
I don't know what I'd do. I, it would shake me to the core. If that person ever had a falling out and they, they were discovered in some massive sin, that would just destroy my faith. That, that might be a hint that my faith is a little bit more wrapped up in a person than it is Jesus. Because even if the people that I respect and admire most in the faith, even if Jim Johnson, even if my dad were to walk away from the faith today, Jesus is no different. The one that I've placed my faith in is still the same. So I don't put them up on a pedestal. They're not at the same place that Jesus is. Uh, The next one is actually kind of tied to that, and that is this. If you want to be unspiritual, clamor to be important. And this is largely behind the divisions over leaders, was that they divided under leaders that they thought could make them important. When I was in high school, um, we used to go to these camps during the summer, and they would kind of meet around different parts of the country, and you could go to different ones. And my youth minister was actually a pretty gifted teacher, a pretty gifted preacher. And so when we would go to these camps, he was often one of the speakers for one of the night sessions. And I used to think that this was a really, really big deal. Now I look back and realize not so much of a big deal, but it was really, really cool to us at the time. And I remember specifically when he would walk out on the stage and, you know, people kind of do the little applause for for the person's stepping out, but I remember our group making a really big deal of it, really applauding, maybe even a standing ovation from time to time. Not so much because we wanted to support him, at least in my own mindset, but because I wanted people to know, that's my guy. I'm attached to that guy. That's my youth minister, and I derive some level of importance and significance from him, and I think that that is behind our fascination with celebrities is the significance I feel in being attached to someone who is more important than me. The the importance that it gives me to be a part of a tribe or a group that sits under this one person. And the world is obsessed with being considered important. The world is obsessed with being noticed. The world is obsessed with rising to the top and having my 15 minutes or my 15 years of fame. But we serve a Savior who did the opposite of all that and called us to do the same. There's this story one day where Jesus is walking along with his disciples and they begin to get in this argument and this fight. This, this didn't happen just once. This happened multiple times. But they, get, they begin to get in this fight over which of them is going to be the greatest in this new kingdom that he's going to set up. And there's this big fight of who's going to sit on his right hand and who's going to sit on his left hand. And they start arguing. And Jesus stops them and begins to talk to them. This is in Mark 10. And I didn't have it actually set there. So let me get there. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42, and, uh, and right after Jesus responds, to this, this is what he says to them. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man, that's him, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the way of the cross. That Jesus, who sat at the highest point, most important, uh, greatest over all things in creation, came and he lowered himself to the lowest point. Not just a human, but to servant. And not just a servant, but to someone who is willing to die a shameful death on the cross. And this is foolishness to the world. 
In a world where the whole point is to get yourself to the top. In a world where the whole point is to be seen and to be thought highly of and to be thought of as great for Jesus to come and move himself down to the bottom is foolish. But Paul says if the world thinks this is foolish, then let's be foolish. Because this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the cross. This is the model that he set out for us. And this one, I'll be honest, cuts me deep. Because this is something that is very natural in me, that I want to be seen as significant. I always want people to think that I'm great. I want people to think that I'm important and that I'm talented and that I'm good at what I do, but it's not the way Jesus operated. And if I'm following the Spirit, then it's not how I'm going to operate either. Last one. If you want to be a baby for the rest of your life, if you want to be really unspiritual, if you want to be immature, be sure to do this. Forget what Jesus has done for you. Let me tell you about one more picky eater. I knew this guy, he used to go to our church, he's since moved, but uh, there's a guy who used to go to our church and he was a really, really picky eater, just like Stacy Irvine, not quite to her level. I don't know if anybody's to her level, but he also, growing up, never really adapted his tastes to like grown-up food, so he mostly liked just kid stuff. His primary go-to was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Okay, as like a 40, 50-year-old man, that was his main thing. So, so much so that when he and his wife went on a cruise, they went on this big vacation on this cruise ship, he literally brought with him like multiple loaves of bread and a jar of peanut butter and jelly so that he could eat on this cruise. So that every time that they would go to a meal, and, and I don't know if you know, like one of the big, that's kind of one of the big draws of cruise is that they just feast all week. You, you go into this dining room and there's just all kinds of incredible food from steak to lobster to cheesecake to all these things. And this guy, every meal sat down with his PB&J, put the knife out, made the sandwich, sat there and ate that in a room full of amazing and decadent foods. It sounds just crazy to me and ridiculous to me, but I want you to go one step further with me in just a second and and imagine that there's not just one guy like this on the cruise ship, but that there's two of them. And And that my friend, he brought the bread and he brought peanut butter and jelly. He came ready, but this other guy totally forgot to bring his PB and J's. And so now he's hungry and he's frustrated and he walks by and he sees my friend with a sandwich there and he asks for it. He's like, hey, can I have that? My friend's like, no, you can't have that. And so the dude just snatches it out of his hands. And before you know it, there's like a full-on fight breaking out in the middle of the dining room. Two like 50-year-old men rolling around on the ground throwing punches over a PB&J sandwich in the middle of a banquet hall. Imagine how insane and ridiculous this looks and you get the idea of what Paul is trying to convey to them when he speaks in verses 21 and 23 of our passage here. Look at this again. He says, So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours and you belong to Christ And Christ belongs to God. You see, at the root of all the fighting that was taking place in Corinth is a failure to remember, Paul says, a failure to remember what they have in Jesus. Paul says to them, you were lost and separated from God. You had no hope in this world. You were cut off from the people of God. But Jesus came to this earth to bring you back. 
He died to remove all of your sins and to remove all of your shame and all your guilt and to bring you into God and to bring you into his family. And he is working everything together for your good. He has placed his Holy Spirit inside of you and he has made you a co-heir with Christ. And here you are fighting about which teacher you follow? Fighting over servants? You look, you look ridiculous in that moment. I'm going to actually bring the band up because we're going to sing here in just a second. But here's what I want you to know, is that the same is true for us. Ephesians 1.3 says this, that for you and I, those of us who are in Christ, that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ that God has given us everything we need. So, and I'm going to move this down to get this out of their way. So when I clamor for importance, or when I take shots at other believers so I can feel better about myself, when someone makes me mad and I refuse to let go of it because I've got to have vengeance, because I'm angry, because I've been wronged, when I fight over insignificant things, the reason I'm doing that is because there's something there that I think I need. I need to be considered important. I need to be seen as better than them. I need to have vengeance when I've been hurt or when I've been wronged. And I look like a guy fighting over a PB&J in the middle of a decadent banquet hall. I look foolish and ridiculous, surrounded by all the blessings of Jesus that have already been paid for. It's already there. It's already available to me. And I try to make myself important through other means. I don't have to do that. You see, what the gospel does, this truth that Jesus has given me everything I need, that frees me to be humble. I don't got to be important now because Jesus has already done that for me. I don't have to try and hold on to bitterness when someone wrongs me because Jesus forgave me and I can forgive them. I don't have to fight with people over insignificant things because I have all the joy and all the peace and every gift and every blessing in Christ. I have everything I need and in the future I will have so much more than that. So what we're going to do tonight is actually sing a little bit about the gospel. We're going to remind ourselves of what we have in Jesus for a little bit. You have your sheet there. You can grab that and then we'll jump in and sing together.